Welcome to the Combat and Classics Podcast. I'm Brian Wilson from Dallas, Texas. I'm Jeff Black from Annapolis, Maryland. And I'm Reese Van Boxel from Santa Fe, New Mexico. Today we're going to do a little mini seminar on Anton Chekhov's The Student. Uh, Lisa's going to lead us off with a little overview and an opening question. Okay, so The Student is... Uh, a very short story, which means the craft of writing is highlighted. Every detail counts, and there are multiple layers as a means of trying to fit a lot of meaning into a short space. So basically, it's about a student, or what one possibly might translate that as disciple, who um, is hunting and all of a sudden uh, feels a sort of shift in weather, which he, which is, at least in my translations, characterized as sort of in an inappropriate wind blowing from the east, which makes him sort of melancholy, perhaps even a little nihilistic. And um, it's Good Friday, and he, he's a young man, and he thinks of his mother and father at home who are fasting because it's Good Friday. Um, and he reflects on sort of political history of Russia, um, through various political leaders. I should note that his name is Ivan, and amongst the three political leaders he mentions, one of them, or the middle one, is Ivan the Terrible, and Peter the Great, and then uh, um, Rurik as, as the first uh, political leader. And um, thinking on his family, he decides it's a bit depressing, I don't really want to go home, and so he wanders off to where the Russian peasants are, and there's a mother and daughter there, and he wanders over and they reflect on the sort of misery that's extended through Russian history throughout all those political ages. And then he shifts and talks about Jesus Christ in the garden um, before he's going to be arrested and led off to be crucified. And Peter's betrayal of, uh, of Christ three times, that Christ foresees that. This produces an odd shift in mood with the mother and daughter, and the mother, although she's smiling, starts to cry and uh, feels very intensely the pain of Peter upon realizing his betrayal. Um, and then the young man, Ivan, leaves and feels elated thinking about um, the way in which the the pain that he's been thinking about that originally made him depressed actually connects him to the the pain of Christ and the sort of suffering of Christ. And so it's reinterpreted that way and he's elated. But my question is, what exactly happens with the mother and daughter such that they relate so closely to Peter and thereby become a sort of the sort of means by which Yvonne's mood is transformed into something elevated and inspiring? Yeah, I have to say I was puzzled by this, too. Um, I think I'm right in saying that uh, neither the mother nor the daughter says anything um, that makes the student or the disciple think that they're following him and they're thinking about uh, Peter's betrayal and Jesus' suffering. So uh, the mother remains, as you said, smiling, but uh, bursts into sobs. And the daughter acquires a look, uh, heavy and tense, like that of a person holding back great pain. And this is the basis on which uh, the student, after some reflection, uh, infers that there was uh, some kind of sympathy between the story he told and uh, the two widows. So yeah, I'm puzzled by this too, uh, what the connection might be. We're told, we're given some details, which we just fill them in, because again, with a short story, every detail matters. So the mother's name is uh, Vasilisa. The daughter's name is sort of 
a little peculiar and therefore draws attention, Lucaria, so the name of an apostle. We have two other apostle, apostle names that show up um, with Peter the Great, um, but also, of course, in the story, the recounting of the story. And maybe when he's, when he's, when Yvonne is relating the story, what we're told is that, uh, I'll just read this little tiny paragraph, the student sighed and sank back into thought. Still smiling, Vasilisa suddenly gave a gulp. Big tears flowed freely down her cheeks, and she screened her face from the fire with her sleeve, as though ashamed of her tears. And Lucaria, staring immovably at the student, flushed crimson, and her expression became strained and heavy, like that of someone enduring intense pain. And then the light starts to quiver, and this is where um, Ivan, that quivering light, he later identifies as sort of the thing that connects him or touches him and connects the misery or the pain of Peter to his own. And so it becomes sort of like almost like a Holy Spirit. So mm-hmm. let's focus a little more particularly. The mother smiles, she covers her face, uh, and she's ashamed of her tears, but but what else? It's a very intense moment. What's going on there? And we could add that Lucaria initially appears deaf and mute, but when Yvonne starts to relate the Peter story, it's clear that she's not. She becomes very intensely focused. Other right. details, the the mother and daughter are paralleled with Yvonne's parents insofar as uh, Lucaria is washing the dishes or uh, just like his mother is. And his father is sort of sitting in front of the fire, just like um, Vasilisa is. So there's some, there seems to be something about like the, you know, the narrator mentions the unbroken chain of history. And we're also kind of faced with this extreme poverty, right? And the student brings this up initially, where he talks about thatched huts and leaky roofs and how you know, that hasn't changed in millennia and he doesn't see it changing. So I'm wondering, you know, he has that backdrop and he has these, you know, poor sick parents. He's faced with these, you know, poor neighbors, one, a widow, one who has, whose husband beats her. And the widow weeps at the story of Christ, but, but is smiling. And the student at the end of the story seems to have an uplifting moment. And I'm trying to, I'm trying to figure out how that unbroken chain of history and the poverty presented as well as the nature, you know, the, the, the scenes of nature that, you know, the, I mean, I love the opening line, uh, which is, let me pull it up here. Uh, in the beginning, the day was nice and peaceful. You know, so we have the we have the Genesis homage, um, but then the actual action of the story mostly takes place at sunset around a fire. So it's really hard to for me to put those pieces of the puzzle together and say the student's reaction to this entire day, entire scene, fasting for the day, is a moment of kind of spiritual awakening or spiritual. I don't know, a connection to the universe and the widows is kind of joy and misery at the same time. Am I describing that kind of generally correctly? 
I, I think I'd go back and say, I, um, I don't think the disciple or the student's parents are poor. I think they're middle class. And his father is sort of in charge of looking after um, the sort of religious, the, the vest, vestments and uh, the religious paraphernalia at the church. Um, so I see here, I guess, I guess when he's thinking about his parents who are doing the, the observing the ritual of fasting on Good Friday, he's in the realm of the political. Um, that's why I think he recalls the Russian history in terms of political characters. When he goes to the poor people, a couple of things. First of all, they actually are eating, so they're not observing the same ritual, and yet they actually seem ultimately to be more pious. And the political history of Russia gets replaced by religious history, right? Um, so rather than being recalling Peter the Great, he's recalling Peter the Disciple. Mm-hmm. So it looks like there's a, there's a sense that the, the misery, um, so, there's something that's just not working in the, I don't know if I want to call it bourgeois world, uh, but certainly the political one that he um, would normally go home to. That's what he rejects. That's right. He says he had no desire to go home. Yeah. Let me add one other detail. Um, Brian, this is going to blow you away when we, we start picking at this. But um, <laughs> his the, um, Lucaria, she was beaten. Her husband, it, does, it doesn't look like she's with her husband anymore. And mm. um, the, is it the mother is wearing a man's coat? I just want to reflect on that for a few moments. Whose coat is that? Let me. Fo- I have no conjectures. <laughs> okay, so let, let, let me see. <laughs> I, I appreciate the cliffhanger question. But I, 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 okay, let me fold, I don't know. fold it back into the narrative and think about why they're crying and embarrassed and the parallels with Christ and Peter. I think the coat is the husband's. And I think the mother killed the husband. Right? So, so there's a murder that's happened. Um, and the parallel, oddly, is that um, the mother, at least for a period, betrayed her daughter because her daughter was married to a man that was beating her. And then she, she killed the husband. And that, Chekhov is saying very indirectly, was the morally appropriate act Mm-hmm. which is really turning things on what we might think as the stereotypically or traditionally moral head of things, right? Right. That's some deep B-side cut right there. <laughs> I knew you'd like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, how does that, how, how does that, I mean, that's that's a huge kind of climactic reveal. Uh do we think do we think the student knows that knows that she killed the husband or suspects it doesn't i mean nothing he says suggests that he knows that um it looks more like in a way i want to think it's chekhov speaking to the reader um about what he regards as what one owes to people that you love and what he regards as, or certainly what the peasant regards as, as moral. And he sets up a contrast between what I'm going to call the more conventional or sort of middle-class opinion about the moral versus the poor people's, which seems in some way to be much, it's more authentic, but more grounded. I, I think 
um, the most obvious textual hint for that is that they actually are eating, which one might think is not appropriate because it's Good Friday, but I think Chekhov thinks it really doesn't matter. That's really not what it's about. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right, this helps me a little bit understand the combination of smiling and sobbing. And it frees me from thinking that uh, it has to be the case that the student is right in interpreting why, um, or maybe just to say it exactly why, um, uh, Vasilisa is um, uh, moved by his story. So would it be right to say that um, she uh, remains smiling but bursts into sobs because the story that the student has told um, is a kind of justification for her? She knew that she did the morally right thing, but it weighed on her nonetheless, and there's something about the student's story that persuades her that there's um, support from Christ or in the Gospels for her action. Is that the right way to read this? That, that looks uh, promising to me. That In that case, they've, they've sort of served as a sort of salvation to each other. Right, which would fit with the title of the piece. That's why I suggested mine's translated as a student, but I guess one could also translate it as disciple, but that he goes to them and he brings them joy, maybe without even being fully cognizant of what form that takes. And their reaction uh, brings him joy. Maybe not, so maybe that they're not actually having quite the same experience in terms of content, although they're having the same spiritual elevation or Mm -hmm. salvation. Mm -hmm. Well, can we press on this a little bit then? Because um, my understanding of the story of Peter's denying uh, Jesus three times is something like this. Um, It shows that Peter didn't really believe, and in particular, he didn't really believe in the um, infinite superiority of the world to come as compared to this world. Right, And so maybe something like a um, conventional interpretation of that would be um, you should be prepared to undergo any kind of torment in this world because it's finite, uh, whether that's uh, admitting that you're one of Jesus' confederates or whether it's enduring the beating of your father. You should be willing to undergo it because it's as nothing compared to the reward, the just reward that you will receive in the next world, or say the merciful reward that you'll receive in the next world. So there's something in there that can't be quite right, right? In other words, the Peter story doesn't support the view that you should endure beatings at the hand of your father, um, according to uh, Vasilisa here. Yeah, husband uh, and daughter. uh, I'm sorry, the, the husband, yeah, yeah. Um, so, what am I uh, misunderstanding here? What am I missing? It seems like that there's some kind of if if Vasilisa is experiencing some kind of <clears throat> divinely inspired satisfaction or, or joy in the story of Peter, and um, the student is experiencing a similar reaction, but the student is coming at it in almost a state of innocence, right? He's very young. Um, There's no real discussion of any part of his life aside from his parents and theological seminary. And then you have this other person who's older, who's kind of seen the world and seen the evil that's in the world and can still find some type of joy in the story of denying Christ. 
it almost seems to me that you can kind of see whatever you want in that, or at least, well, you can, you can see something different, you know, and I'm wondering, you know, it seems, I don't know, it just seems like that, that the student is looking at the world and going, you know, nature is uneasy. You know, he says that at some point, nature herself was uneasy in the beginning part of the story with how the weather turns, how biting cold it becomes. Mm -hmm. And then, but he doesn't seem uneasy. He seems somewhat at peace with the way the world works in his mind. But the, the, the mother who has done this thing that is, you know, like Lee said, wrong as far as Christianity is concerned seems both saddened and at peace with it. I guess, that I, might be a little bit of a stretch. I guess it seems to me that Chekhov doesn't think she's done something wrong, even according to Christianity, um, but that mm-hmm. maybe mm-hmm. a more wooden interpretation of Christianity uh, would say that she did. So let's let's go back to, to Jeff recalling us to the biblical account. I take it Peter, the disciple Peter, betrays Christ because he's afraid, and he doesn't want to, mm-hmm. he's not willing to sacrifice either his life or his position in uh, the society for the sake of his love of Christ, although I think he does love Christ. His fear is understandable. Um, right. The mother in this story, right, we're told, I'll just read a bit of a detail, right? Um, the campfire was burning brightly with the crackling sound, throwing out light far around on the plowed earth. The widow Vasilisa, a tall, fat old woman in a man's coat, was standing by and looking thoughtfully into the fire. So sort of like um, uh, Ivan will be doing shortly. Her mm-hmm. daughter, Lucaria, a pockmarked woman with a stupid-looking face, was sitting on the ground washing a cauldron and spoons. Apparently they just had supper. There was a sound of men's voices. It was it was the laborers watering their horses at the river. Uh, and then we're told that um, they said they talked Vasilisa, a woman of experience who had been in service with the gentry, first as a wet nurse, afterwards as a children's nurse, expressed herself with refinement and a soft, sedate smile never left her face. Her daughter, Lucaria, a village peasant woman who had been beaten by her husband, simply screwed up her eyes at the student and said nothing. And she had a strange expression like that of a deaf mute. So I take it that the mother, she, she doesn't have that job anymore. Right? Um, they're poor now. It was a pretty good job, it looks like. So I take it that uh, she did give, she lost that position or had to leave that position because she murdered the daughter's husband. Um, and so she feels, as Jeff was saying earlier on, understandably uh, conflicted about having murdered this man, that looks like a sin. Um, but on the other hand, she did what Peter was afraid to do. Right? That she, she gave up a position, took a risk to save her daughter, who I suspect here is parallel to Christ in, insofar mm-hmm. as she's, she's the one that needed to be defended. So then the question comes back to, for me, like, what is the student, I'm trying to get inside the student's head here, you know, it's a small, it's a small village, at least that's how I'm picturing it, that could be totally wrong, you know, he knows these women, he knows of their lives, 
but he's missing that piece of, you know, what happened to the husband. So, you know, is it village wisdom um, that that she offed him and everybody just accept it because the guy was not a good guy? And is it kind of village mercy that's allowed her to continue just because they said, yeah, he's a bad guy, so we accept you and you'll have to be poor, but we're not going to put you in prison. There's this detail. I mean, so he could just be in sort of in it could just be uh, fortuitous or we might maybe we're supposed to understand that he's somehow inspired by the Holy Spirit um, that sort of infuses the story. But there is this detail, right, when he says kind of out of the blue to them, um, have you heard of the, the, the 12 apostles? And this is the one thing Vasilisa actually does say that's reported to us. Yes, I have. And then he nevertheless goes on to relate it, right? He says, if you remember at the Last Supper, Peter said to Jesus, I'm ready to go with thee into darkness and unto death. And our Lord answered him thus, I say unto thee, Peter, before the cock croweth, thou wilt have denied me thrice. After the supper, Jesus went through the agony of death in the garden and prayed, and poor Peter was weary in spirit and faint. His eyelids were heavy, and he could not struggle against sleep. He fell asleep. Then you heard how Judas the same night kissed Jesus and betrayed him to his tormentors. They took him, bound to the high priest, and beat him. Um, mm -hmm. While Peter, exhausted, worn out with misery and alarm, hardly, hardly awake, you know, feeling that something awful was just going to happen on earth, followed behind. He loved Jesus passionately, intensely, and now he saw from afar how he was beaten. So we're told three... <laughs> Three times that beatings are occurring, right? The daughter mm -hmm. at the hands of her husband and then Christ here twice. That's why I say that the, the mm -hmm. parallel is here between Christ and Lucaria. But mm -hmm. mom, in this case, steps in and stops the beating. Right? Right. But at, this, at this, uh, this possible moral cost to herself and social cost. Mm -hmm. Seems like the at least an interesting conundrum for me is does the student feel good about himself at the end of the play for the ability to relate that story, to give Vasilia some comfort interactions or is he just unaware, you know, is he unaware of what's come before and is just, you know, having left good Friday mass uh, and heard, you know, this story of Peter and just it's on his mind and decides to bring it up in conversation, which seems a little coincidental. Mm -hmm. Or does it kind of just spring forth from him having known a little bit of the backstory? And that's why he focuses on the beating and provides Vasilia some of the kind of comfort of knowing that she was more devout to her daughter than Peter was to Jesus. Yeah. I think four paragraphs from the end, we get something that helps us narrow down that question a little bit. Uh, we get uh, the student's thoughts turn to Vasilia. If she, uh, Vasilisa, sorry, if she wept, it meant the things that happened to Peter on that terrible night had some relevance for her. Uh, so it looks like he can't be, how, however um, accidental or fortuitous his stress on the beatings is when he's giving a kind of interpretation of uh, Peter's story, it can't be because he actually knows what happened to this family. Um, 
he uh, is um, speculating about the, the connection between the story and Vasilisa's background. So he's a kind of, un, like I said, they, they both have a sort of elevating experience, but the content's different. Mm-hmm. Um, let's, let's just fold in something else. It does, it's obviously uh, important that this occurs on Good Friday, right? So um, am I to think as a res- from that that there's a way in which at least the mother and daughter, uh, they might feel themselves in darkness because of this more this conundrum they're in where they don't know how to understand the murder morally um but the story that ivan tells unbeknownst even to himself allows her to feel like like her sin has been she's been redeemed from her sin that would connect it to good friday with the impending sunday right Mm -hmm. the resurrection of christ well, it's also interesting because she does, or the 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 author does give us a a brief mention of Judas, right? Uh, where he's talking about uh, after that supper, Jesus mortally pined and prayed in the garden, but Peter, so depressed and strengthless, couldn't overcome sleep no matter what he did. So, closing his heavy eyelids, he slept, and that's interesting that. Then we lead to, then you heard how in that same night Judas kissed Jesus and then gave him over to tormentors. So that seems to be, you could read it potentially as, you know, the mother slept and then became Judas to a certain extent and kissed her daughter and sent her away to be with her tormentor. And then the story gets rewritten with in the context of the mother-daughter scenario. And right after that, mm-hmm. where there's a parallel, um, Yvonne, still relating the, the garden story, speaks, or the betrayal story, speaks of how um, all the laborers that were standing near the fire must have looked sourly and suspiciously at him, that is Peter, because he was confused and said, I don't know him, him being Christ. And we're told immediately after that that the laborers start to come up to the fire where they're standing, but now the laborers don't look like they're suspicious or hostile. It looks like it's quite a peaceful scene. So there's literally a sort of just a retelling uh, um, with a different plot in this scenario. Um, Maybe that's another interesting thing is that to show that Yvonne doesn't know exactly what's going on. He connects, for him, the suffering that he felt at the beginning of the story is folded into the narrative by the end of the story of Christ's suffering and thereby redeemed. It becomes beautiful as opposed to sort of nihilistic, the way he the way he was inclined to see it initially. Um, but he doesn't seem to he doesn't seem to be aware of the fact that the actually the whole garden scene is being replayed here. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe maybe not much hinges on whether he's aware of it or not. But but that nevertheless looks like what Chekhov is doing. Right. It looks like he might be accidentally right about what he's experienced, right? We've, we've quoted this a couple of times. He felt he had just seen both ends of that chain, the unbroken chain of history or something like that. He had touched one end and the other had moved. What he thinks has happened is that he has told the story of Peter and Vasilisa has been moved, right? Um, that, in fact, is what's happened, but uh, he doesn't understand the links, right? He, he, might, uh, he might have a different uh, guess as to what the links are. 
than the what's the fact of the matter with her. Um, I wonder how much it matters for the hopefulness that there could be a mysterious connection um, between the ends of the chain, right? In other words, uh, he's changed, uh, at least you called it a nihilistic vision at the beginning of a kind of uh, permanent uh, or recurrence maybe of uh, poverty and hunger. And now it looks like he's got a hopeful sense of some mysterious connection between the past and the future. And uh, I wonder how much it matters that uh, there be a mystery there for it to be hopeful. It might be better if uh, you really knew what the connections were and understood why Vasilisa is, uh, is feeling uplifted by the story. Yeah, of course, then you would have the complication of um, if he didn't know that she'd murdered the husband before, whether and how he would be able to handle that moral complication. That is, maybe he would... Um, uh, maybe he would not be able to wrap his mind around the possibility that that might be understood as a moral act under the, in the circumstances. So he leaves. I'm just looking at the very end of their of his encounter. It's not immediately upon um, Lucaria's and Vasilisa's response to the story that he is uplifted. Right? We're told he tells a story, and then we're told the student sighed and sank back into thought. Still smiling, Vasilisa suddenly gave a gulp. Big tears flowed freely down her cheeks, and she screened her face from the fire with her sleeve as though ashamed of her tears. And then Lucaria has this very intense focus on uh, uh, Ivan. And then the laborers come back, and we're told there's this quivering light. And he, that paragraph ends, he says, a cruel wind was blowing. Winter really had come back, and it did not feel as though Easter would be the day after tomorrow. Uh, and then he, he starts thinking about Vasilisa, and he says, uh, since she'd shed tears, all that happened to Peter the night before the crucifixion must have had some relation to her. Then we just get, you know, dot, 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 dot. He looked around. The solitary light was still gleaming in the darkness, and no figures could be seen near it now. The student thought again that if Vasilisa had shed tears and her daughter had been troubled, it was evident that what he'd been telling them about which had happened 19 centuries ago, had a relation to the present, to both women, to the desolate village, to himself, to all people. The old woman had wept, not because he could tell the story touchingly, but because Peter was near to her, because her whole being was interested in what was passing in Peter's soul. He's right about that, it seems. Mm -hmm. He doesn't, doesn't necessarily know the content, but he's right about that. And then there's the, the final movement, right? A joy suddenly stirred in his soul, and he even stopped for a minute to take a breath. The past, he thought, is linked with the present by an unbroken chain of events flowing out, one out of the other. And it seemed to him that he'd just seen both ends of that chain, that when he touched one end, the other quivered. That's right, too. Mm -hmm. Right. So I don't I don't know if, it, if he has to know the details, but he realizes that there's this connection, and for him... It's the thoughtful reflection on that interaction that redeems him, whereas he's already, in a way, possibly inadvertently, redeemed the mother and daughter. Mm -hmm. So that he might um, be repelled if he knew the details of the connection is not a problem for the hopefulness that uh, he feels at the end? Yeah, my sense is Chekhov is trying to bury what could be regarded as a morally subversive 
perspective, um, and I'll, I'll throw in a military hook here, right, that um, <laughs> she, the mother, I mean, according to the sort of literal interpretation, at least certain literal interpretations, one might say she sinned, right, and, and, a, and a terrible mm -hmm. sin, right, she murdered somebody. Um, but Chekhov seems to be saying that's overly simplistic, right, that would be like Yvonne's parents, perhaps, right, where there are these sort of rules and one, one doesn't eat on Good Friday. Um, but in fact, Chekhov seems to be saying, no, these other people uh, who are eating on Good Friday actually have it right. There are times when this is the moral thing to do. You do, you do dispense with your daughter's husband if he's beating her, right? And there's, and there's no other recourse, presumably. Mm-hmm. That was your hook, Brian. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm just I'm glad somebody's doing a military hook. Um, yeah, you know, I, I, I'm curious about this. This is kind of a general theme with a lot of the things I read about, um, and especially because you know, you we've all you know done uh, seminars on like the the credo and um, you know, things like that, and so the the moral the moral distance of acting yourself versus um, kind of laying the case in front of your tribe, your your village, and saying, I think this person did something wrong, um, but I'm not going to act. I'm going to give up my uh, ability to act and pass that over to the community. And so, you know, I've always, I guess I've always been kind of confused about the morality of not acting in the face of injustice uh, versus not trusting your own wisdom, you know, and saying, I think that there was something morally wrong here. I'm going to act and accept whatever consequences may happen. Or I'm just going to say, I'm going to present my case, you know, and say, all right, community, you decide. And so it's, I, I can't come down on a firm, one of those things is more moral than the other, you know? And maybe to do so would be uh, to misunderstand what Chekhov is doing here. That is, it looks, at least in part, uh, it's a prudential calculation. You, you can't have a law simply. The law might be sort of helpful, a helpful guy, but it's not a sort of Kantian absolute, as, at least as Chekhov presents it here. Uh, rather, you have to simply use it as a guide and then ap apply the sort of spirit of it in the moment, um, and which might be much, much more complicated right, than, than the principle, mm -hmm. the universal principle. It's just because we're so on top of the story, I think I'll complicate it farther <laughs> this way. That is, um, if Peter, if the disciple Peter had done and or could do something like the mother could do, um, Good Friday wouldn't be happening. <laughs> so mm -hmm. this is even further complicated is that there's a way in which in the biblical account, uh, it was necessary that that Christ be crucified, this horrible thing. At least that's one interpretation, right? Because he was here to save mm -hmm. the world from sin. But I think Chekhov, again, being very, is, is not allowing it to be that simple, right? Because the suggestion is that maybe Peter really messed up. Maybe he ought to have done what the mother did. Mm -hmm. In which case, where would that leave us with respect to this this chain that connects the current suffering with Christ? 
Right, yeah. Yeah, another way to pose this difficulty is one of his last thoughts um, is how the truth and beauty guiding human life back there in the garden and in the high priest's courtyard carried on unceasingly to this day and had in all likelihood and at all times been the essence of human life and everything on earth. Right, that insight might not be exactly right, that the sense of truth and beauty that uh, guided in the high priest's courtyard could have been different from what was guiding uh, uh, Vasilisa in her decision about her daughter's husband. Uh, so, yeah, the, the youth might um, be hopeful, but for the wrong reasons. And maybe that, uh, according to Chekhov, is, is, um, is enough. I mean, you mean just, just to be hopeful that, that the reasons don't really matter, but it's rather the sense that there's, what, that there's, that the world is not devoid of meaning? Right, or that there, uh, there can persist a human capacity to um, sort out moral difficulties and act rightly, um, even though it might not be shared by all, or there might not be universal agreement as to what the principles are. Oh, literature. <laughs> it's tricky. Um, and this is like, this is just to put a plug in here. I guess this is why we spend so much time in literature versus just studying philosophy for this kind of blueprint of the human experience and blueprint of morality. Because it seems like when you try to describe it as succinctly as possible, you lose some of the, I don't want to say vagaries, but you lose something in the background at least um, that communicates the kind of concept of what it means to be human uh, versus just laying out the story and allowing us to kind of tease it out and see the contrast. I always think that the literature, Rousseau says this actually, but the literature is a way of having um, an experience in your life that you don't have sort of concretely, um, but by having it through literature, there's a way which you can sort of telescope your life or, or have all kinds of experiences that you in a single lifetime would not have time mm -hmm. to, uh, to have in this concrete way. And um, although they are, they're occurring through literature, not concretely, they nevertheless have real educational and psychic value, right? It's a, it's a real experience you have if you analyze the text. Um, and hence, I think, as you were saying, Brian, here we find ourselves in a really complex situation. So you could learn, oh, this is what morality is, here are the Ten Commandments, uh, and now we have to actually try to apply them here. And, <laughs> and, and it, becomes, it becomes a matter of prudence, right? How do you navigate? Yeah. Well, I think that might be a good way to sign off. Um, so thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Lise, for... Another fun episode. Deep. We went deep on this. We need to do like some Calvin and Hobbes cartoons at some point to, to lighten things up rather than murder and wife beating. But it seems like there's, there's, there's few imaginary tiger characters in like the scope of the great books and probably a little bit more murder. Um, but that's okay. They're both fun. Uh, <laughs> uh, all right so you can uh, check us out at combatandclassics.org and uh, Jeff Lee, anything you guys want to throw in here at the end oh, not for me Brian thank you 
Thank, okay. Thanks very much. Check out St. John's College. We hear it's good. That's my <laughs> that's my big sales pitch. All right. Thanks, guys. Bye, Brian. Bye, bye. <laughs>